You know, considering this was actually intended to be a bit of a bottle show, it's really strange how this episode ended up getting uh, an Emmy. Uh, it actually shared an Emmy for visual effects alongside Conundrum, which we'll be looking at later this year. I think this year. Later on. It's coming out later this season, at the very least. Excuse me, I have a bit of a sore throat now. Yeah, I know, I'm always sick. Whatever. Um, I also want to mention that Robin Williams was actually supposed to play the role of Rasmussen in this episode, which is very common knowledge. What I've not heard repeated as often is the specific reason why Williams decided not to do it. He decided to do to play the role of Peter Pan over in Hook instead. I'll let you decide whether that was the right call or not. That's kind of a judgment call at that point. This is also a weird... So this episode's kind of strange. Berman really pushed for this episode. Rick Berman has a historical record of being really into time travel stuff. In fact, he's been one of the big proponents of time travel in uh, the later movies, in Voyager and in Enterprise. You know, the whole Temporal Cold War was a big thing he was pushing for. Uh, the Temporal Prime Directive and the Temporal Teams, that was something he was pushing for, etc., etc. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, by the way. Although it was a bad thing, I'd say at least twice, uh, specifically with regards to the movies. But other than that, I'm with it. The only problem is time travel has to be written very carefully in order to be good, in my opinion. And that's a little bit more subjective. Regardless... This is also an episode that was directed by Paul Lynch. Now, I point that out because he has a weird list of episodes he has directed. These include Naked Now, Babel, Q-Less, and 11001001. Now, I brought up each of those episodes very much on purpose because each one of those episodes shares one commonality amongst them. The characterizations, the personalities of the characters in them, are flanderized exaggerated, in other words, from their usual qualities. And I have a strange feeling that that's part of why this episode feels just a little bit off. There's a few... It's hard to explain unless you've seen the episode and are a Trek fan, which probably applies to roughly 100% of the people listening to this. So for those of you listening to this, it's easy to explain to you because everyone's just a little bit distended and acting just a little bit out of character. And there's just too many instances of that to, to list, but it's basically the whole episode. It, it really kind of bothered me. Again, very minor point, which is funny because I do like the episode in general, and a lot of that is because of Matt Frewer. See, he's the one they brought in instead of Robin Williams, and, well, he's an interesting actor. <laughs> he doesn't exactly have a huge amount of, of amazing credits under his belt, and yet he manages to throw himself into the role fairly well. He comes across as just charismatic enough to avoid being as obnoxious as he probably is just on the script. And yet at the same time, he is still obviously aggravating, which is part of the character. He manages to hit a surprising sweet spot in between those two things. And there's two moments, which I'll bring in later, of surprising humanization that he does. That is, that is full acting. That's just fully on the character and, and uh, the actor. So... That, that's awesome. I do think he does a very good job of the role. So let's talk about the premise really quick here. A historian has come back to witness events as they're happening. Okay, I'm with that. That happened back in the original series. What? Don't you remember? Assignment Earth? As I've said before, I'm okay with ejecting elements of TOS, TAS, and Season 1 TNG if they contradict later continuity. Um... 
Because we kind of have to do that a lot. Unfortunately, there's just too many things that weren't designed with world building in mind and which were just being done because, ah, screw it, let's just try this, right? We don't often hear in the history books about how Kirk was a woman for a while there. So the idea of, you know, a historian going back in time to study history actually makes a lot of sense in its own right, but not the way it's applied here. See, even when I was first watching this episode, my first thought was, oh, no, he's not. No. Because it didn't make any sense to me, even as a kid, that a historian would go back and decide to just be like, hi, I'm, I'm a historian from the future, and I'm here to study you. Like, that, that didn't gel with me. Nowadays, with the advantage of, you know, the other the 20 or so years that's been since this episode came out, 20, 28 years it's been since this episode's come out, jeez, and almost 30 years. Uh, with the advantage of those 28 years, I can look at this and say, yeah, no, he's absolutely a fake. But even as a kid, I thought just the core premise was, eh. And the only reason I was willing to kind of accept that, you know, the the crew was willing to go along with it was because he did show, he did show up in a time machine, and he did know where to find the Enterprise, and he does know stuff about them. You know, he has the credentials that Picard brings up that are kind of hard to refute. But everything else about his presentation says that he's a fake. His overall approach is he's very overt. He's very obvious. He does a typical con man trick. He, he distracts. He tosses out dozens of little interactions and anecdotes to basically shotgun his, his victims in order to constantly have them thinking about anything other than him and why he's here and, and the holes in his story. And at several points in time when someone grills him more directly, he doesn't respond directly. He kind of navigates around the question to try and say, okay, well, maybe you know this, or, oh, really, I mean, I could tell you. Like, I, I hate to skip ahead of my notes, but the scene where he and Picard have their confrontation towards the end of the, the episode, which is the best scene in this episode by far, he basically never answers Picard directly until Picard really puts him on point, and then he just meekly apologizes because he can't help him. I'll, I'll get more to that later, though. He does do a lot of assumption and inferences, which is a very typical trick. Uh, I could walk up to him and say, hey, um, so I'm actually really bad at this myself, so I'm trying to think of how, like an explanation here. It's when someone, it's a form of cold reading, basically. You say something generic and in a way that is designed to be prompting. The other person then fills in the gaps of your information with you know, whatever facts they do, and then you then you seize onto that, like, aha, yeah. The problem with cold reading is it's if you're if you're thinking it's coming, it is the easiest thing in the world to destroy, to completely prove wrong. Because for example, someone could be like, Hey, how's your brother doing? And I'd be like, Oh, Jeff? And he's like, Yeah, Jeff, man, he's doing great. And then I could say, Well, I don't have a brother named Jeff. You just have to feed a little bit of false information in there, and then they, if they pick up on that as if that's the truth, there you go. It's, a, like I said, very typical con man trick, and he does this constantly. He also is a little bit too much of a tease. Way too many times, he's way too interactive with people, and he bothers to basically say, Oh, man, I can't believe you're such and such. Oh, I can't tell you why. Oh, gosh, I can't believe I'm here for this date. Oh, I can't tell you why. Oh, this is going to be so exciting. I wonder if, if I could get some schematics for you, just for no reason. Oh, I can't tell you why. He, he teases way too much. See, this is the thing. We have to now talk about 
uh, well, let's talk about his methods, and then we'll talk about the idiot defense, okay? I don't think I've actually had occasion to bring up the idiot defense on my show, even though it's a really common thing in fiction. But let's let's move on really quick. So, um, he's too interactive, he's too irritating, he lies repeatedly, even in a catchable format within the thing. Let me use a direct example of this. Riker says, well, why haven't we had records of other historians visiting like you? His response, oh, well, obviously we've been very careful. This is actually a two-part lie, because obviously the first part is the obvious part, the provable part. He is lying because he's not being careful, unless you really believe that everyone's just going to not talk about or report the fact that a time traveler showed up at this point in history. Right? Second problem, the actual historian that he did something to, we're, we're not actually sure what, I'll talk about that later was obviously also not careful because Rasmussen was able to overpower him in some way or another and steal his machine. Also, what the hell was a, res was a time traveler doing in New Jersey? I'm really curious about that. No offense to anyone in New Jersey, but given the time frame mentioned, I I'm really curious what event was being perceived there, you know? Anyways. So, he's, so, he, so he lies... And then he upsets people. The upsets people is the really strange part, because he goes out of his way to basically provoke people, getting right up in their faces, refusing to leave. Like, there's a bit where Jordy basically has to duck around him in order to get through him and continue doing his job that he's actively doing. And then there's the bit with Crusher. Now, obviously, this would apply whether he is a time traveler or not. But his advances onto, granted, that's Gates McFadden. I can understand the physical attraction, but his advances are very, very clearly unwanted. That's a no-no, whether you're a time traveler or not. The fact that she has to literally duck under his arm, which he's doing this thing where he's trying to block her in. The fact that she has to literally duck under his arm to get out of there is ridiculous. The fact that he's going to this level of extent to ostracize these people who are already suspicious of him is what are you thinking, dude? Then, there's Troy. Now, I want to talk about Troy briefly. Because I feel like this is going to be a recurring trend. Like, I don't know if that's true or not, but this is not the first time I've pointed out that if Troy had actually retained the loss of her ability, that's a weird way to put that, isn't it? If she had never gotten back her empathic abilities after the episode The Loss, this episode would make a lot more sense. Because all of Troy's suspicions make perfect sense. She is a psychologist, and therefore she has a better understanding of these kind of manipulations than most other people would. I can kind of buy a con man being able to con his way through most of the Federation of this era, because most of the Federation of this era are naive and stupid. But Troy, it would make sense to me that she's the one who basically cracked the egg here and figured out that he was not on the level and basically put security on it, noticed stuff was missing, and then find him out. I would have liked it if that was in that, and it was all just deductive reasoning based on the way he acts, the way he dodges questions, the way he constantly scatters misinformation around, etc. And I say misinformation, I don't actually mean that. It's actually more like he scatters correct information more or less out of context. Like, oh my god, look, you know, is this an original? You know, this was supposed to be on your desk. So, whatever. <clears throat> Let's talk about the idiot defense. Rasmussen's an idiot. <laughs> this is a demonstrable thing. He is actually very stupid. I'll talk about his plan and why it's stupid in a minute. But also, as I've pointed out, everything he's been doing here is stupid. So, is that acceptable? See, the idiot defense 
calls is something that only comes up in fiction. The general idea is often fans, I'm sure you guys have been involved in an idiot defense argument at least once in your life, because fans will debate, is this bad writing or is this good writing of a stupid character? And there's a whole philosophical discussion that can happen about that. Are stupid characters acceptable, especially when it comes to villains? Uh, you know, the argument being, oh, a villain can only lose if they're stupid, right? And, of course, the counter-argument being, if a villain can only lose if they're stupid, then they're not an engaging villain. And how much stupid is acceptable? And how much of that is just blind luck? And how much of that is, is screenwriting? And how much of that is actually something that can make sense in character? And it, it's this whole argument. It's this whole mesh. And it's been debated for years and years and years. But the idiot defense boils down to, is this a stupid writer or a stupid character? And it's usually a gradient in between these two points. Now, Rasmussen's a moron. <laughs> That's very, very clear. Uh, the fact that he basically doesn't get away with anything is kind of indicative of that. But how much of that do you think is acceptable? Honest question. Do you think it is acceptable to just presume that this guy is an idiot and somehow manage to overpower the, the actual time traveler? We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, figure out how to work the ship somehow, figure out how to find exactly where the Enterprise is going to be at a specific point in time. He was within 300 clicks of the Enterprise going through warp. That's like buzzing right by the skin from a galactic perspective, from, from a space travel perspective. That's right next door. And of course, Picard even notices that. That's way too close for a coincidence, right? He has enough information to know when and where the Enterprise is going to be, in deep space no less, en route to their destination. And yet, he's... Yeah. Anyways. What do you guys think? Now, I also want to mention the, the, the petty theft thing. This is part of his plan. This is part of the flaw in his plan. And this flaw here is that he has decided to resort to stealing in order to get items in order to take back to the past with him. Why does he have to steal these? If you notice the list of items that he's stolen, it's all very mundane stuff, like a tricorder, you know, a, a, the neural analyzer. There's a, there's a frickin' Klingon knife there, for God's sakes. Now, for the most part, he could probably just say, is there any chance I could get one of these for, the, for historical records, for museum? In fact, if anything, he probably should have gone to Picard and said, here's a list of stuff I'd like. I understand if you don't want to give me the whole list, but if you could just, you know, anything on this list that I could take back with me would be awesome, please, and thank you. Bam. No need for that. And I even have additional evidence for this. Not only would they be, probably be more inclined to do that than, you know, go along with this. Given the fact that they're willing to go along with the freaking questionnaires, I have a feeling they'd be willing to give him some historical curiosities of relatively minor importance. Probably wouldn't give him a phaser. Worf probably wouldn't give him a knife. But he'd probably get the rest. Like a combat too. I don't know. Which brings me to my next point, of course. Um, he actually asks Crusher for a neuroanalyzer. Shows it to her, walks out of the room with it. He didn't steal that. He just asked for it, and she gave it to him. <laughs> this actually gets even stupider, if you think about it for a second, because two of the times we see him palm pocket something, it's in front of Data, who almost assuredly noticed, because he's Data. In this scene where it's established that Data can listen to multiple things simultaneously, and he usually tries to limit himself to only ten, Rasmussen presumes that he is sufficiently distracted by talking on the comm that he can palm something after, and this is critical, opening it up. And we, the audience, can hear the... And then closing it and then pocketing it. 
there is no way in hell Data did not notice that. If anything, that's probably the biggest piece of evidence that Data's the one who actually cracked the case in the actual episode, even though it should have been Troy, but whatever. Then we get to the fact that he oversells it. I wrote down a list of things. And I, I, I wrote this list down very specifically. I would love it if you guys would like to add to this list. How many of y'all are geeks? Now, I like to define a geek as an enthuser. A geek is someone who is legitimately, honestly enthusiastic about something. You know, car geeks, racing geeks, uh, computer geeks, um, science fiction geeks, Star Wars geeks, book geeks, right? I wrote a list of things that I've seen people be geeks about. Trains, uh, solar mechanics, proper arch construction for uh, you know, just engineering, uh, chemical interactions that uh, cause things to alter in, in subtle ways, <coughs> cooking, cleaning. I have seen people enthuse about the specific types of interactions of chemical agents specifically used to clean very specific types of uh, stains and whatnot. I don't have details on you because I am not a cleaning geek myself. But you get the point, right? I have seen geeks be geeks about things that could be considered boring topics. I have seen people absolutely gush about history. I have, in fact, seen many history ge geeks in my life. And not a single one of them act like this guy. And that's the problem. This is why I say he's overselling it. Oh my god, the, the feeling of being here is indescribable. That's not how you act when you're enthusing about something. That's how you act when you're trying to pretend that you're enthusing about something. <laughs> Which either makes you a dork or a liar. Take your pick. Now, an actual historian geek would just be like, oh, don't mind me, don't mind me, don't mind me. And just wrapped with attention, right? And there's other ways it could be presented, too. But none of them are the way he presents it. Which, again, gets back to why I think Troy should have been the one to crack this case. Because his, his mannerisms give it all away. He, he flirts with Crusher. Um, look at my notes. I'm pretty sure I'm up to the point where I want to talk about the big scene. Because this, this episode is kind of lacking in several ways. Uh, Matt Frewer helps it tremendously. He does do a very good job of his role, like I said. And the actual crisis of the week, for once, is actually engaging enough to help buoy the episode, in my opinion. We have a fairly logical, down-to-earth, well-reasoned science fiction problem. This is a colony. An asteroid has hit it. They're having a fake greenhouse effect. Or not greenhouse, I changed it. They're bas it's basically lowering the temperature. The, the, not enough of the sun's heat can get through the atmosphere. They're trying to fix it. Their first thought, we'll go ahead and drill down, get enough nitrous oxide, create an artificial greenhouse effect, try to help offset the problem. Okay, that causes the mantle to destabilize in the spots where they hit it, which means now they have a worse problem because volcanic ash is joining with that, and now they once again do not have enough heat coming from the sun. So, they're staring at a mass evacuation plan here, or they could try this thing where they basically try to erupt the, uh, the entire atmosphere, rip all of the eruption off, and jettison it out into space, in order to basically clear off all of this in one thing. It's very risky and very dangerous and mentioned as such. I like all of that. Like, it's, it's, I don't know if that's as scientifically accurate as it should be, especially the final plan to rip off the atmosphere and shut it into space. But it's still engaging enough of a thing that I found myself like, oh, God, what's going to happen next? At multiple points in the episode, which is a rarity for the thread of the week. It's, it's usually just kind of the background thing I'm trying to ignore in favor of the better character stuff. But speaking of better character stuff, Picard and Rasmussen.
That's gold. The the two actors play off each other wonderfully because the best part is Picard, at every point, behaves as if Rasmussen is sincere. Keeping in mind at this point, Picard almost assuredly knows Rasmussen is, at least to some extent or another, a fake. But he nevertheless presents, he, he portrays himself as if he thinks he's legit. Why? Because if he is legitimate, then he has to treat him as if he's legitimate. It's a, it's a risk, in other words. So, he does so. And what's brilliant about it is Rasmussen has no real counter-argument for anything he says or does. He just does his, the same trick he's been doing the entire episode of trying to segue the point or trying to distract by going to this other thing. And Picard shuts him down every single time he does it and nails him right back down to the central point. You know what's going to happen. I need to do this. Well, but the Prime Directive, Prime Directive, I have, and this is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. I have sworn to uphold the Prime Directive. I have sworn to uphold those values. But I have always been willing to question and change my own beliefs. And right now, I have 20 million reasons to question those beliefs. That is an awesome line right there. It is astonishing to me that mid-TNG, mid Season 5, more than once, actually, I guess that came up, so in Season 4 and Season 5 both, all of a sudden the Prime Directive is being portrayed exactly how I think it should be. It's something that is a base rule for good reason that should be challenged when good reason exists to do so. A baseline, not a hard line. Make sense? And I love the way it's portrayed here. And Picard is more than willing to risk this and say, I have to question you. I have to ask you. And then Rasmussen tries to talk around this and talk around this. And if you're paying attention throughout the course of the scene, and this is where Matt Fuhrer really shines, he gets more and more uncomfortable the longer Picard grills him. Until it gets to the point where there's just like a like he's practically crawling out of his skin until a, at a certain point. And Picard then hammers him about the temporal prime directive, which hasn't even been invented yet, although we, as we find out, that is a thing. And finally, he has destroyed all of Rasmussen's arguments. He has completely bared him down and said, please help me make this decision, save those lives. And he has completely ripped past all of his arguments. And Rasmussen is just slumped, defeated. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you. Because he literally can't help him. In all of his research he did for figuring out how the Enterprise works, he didn't look into what happened in the event, because it wasn't relevant. It wasn't part of the thing. Say, like, okay, it's, he, it, it, the historical record was probably the Enterprise went here and fixed the planet, and that's all he knows. He has no specifics, he has no details. It's probably the most humanizing scene for Rasmussen in the entire episode. It is The only other really humanizing scene is immediately after this, when... He goes onto the bridge, and he sits over in Troy's usual spot while things happen. I never noticed this before, but watch him. He's never the focus of the camera, except for like a few seconds. But watch Matt Frewer in the background. He's terrified. He is legitimately terrified. And when the, the incident ends, he looks like he's winded. Like, oh my god, I can't believe I just went through that. That is an awesome portrayal. Because there's two ways to interpret it, and they're not mutually exclusive. He was terrified because he might have just watched 20 million people die. And let's be honest, most people, even villains, can't just watch 20 million people die and be like, cool with it, you know? And the danger to the ship himself, and as a consequence, him. Which do you think it, it leans more towards of those two? Now, 
as, as if it's not obvious, because of these two scenes, I like to think that Rasmussen isn't that bad. He's not a good person. He's a con artist. But he's not a mass-murdering psychopath, right? Well, then we get to the big reveal. Hey, we want to, to see if those items are on the ship. Okay, well, Data, come on board. Okay. So they go on board, and he's like, Ha! Plot twist! I am actually from the past. I'll admit, that core premise does engage me. I like the idea of a time traveler who is from the past, who has incidentally happened. As Nicholas Meyer actually wrote a bit like this as well. Uh, there's been a few time travel stories like that over the years. But I like this idea. What I don't like is basically everything else about it. This is when we get to the real meat of him being an idiot. So his plan is to do a ton of research on the future, go to the future, steal a bunch of stuff while, while conning all over the place, and apparently he is a con scientist, because he mentions he is a bit of an inventor. Go back and invent these devices. Okay. But first of all, i just like to call Bull on the fact that he thinks he can understand how these devices work at all. Oh, he can get them to be used. He can shoot a phaser, he can scan a thing. But as far as actually figuring out how it works, not a chance in hell. If for no other reason than the basic concept of the integrated circuit which is something that most people, if you went back down in time, I don't know, a century, wouldn't understand. Keeping in mind that these things use isolinear chips, which would be another temporal gap of lack of understanding when it comes to technology. I'm sorry, but if you put a brilliant person from 1901 to right now and gave him a, an iPod or, or an iPhone, he would not figure out how that thing works. <laughs> He would probably break it in the process of trying to study and, and understand it. Which brings me, of course, to the second problem. How is he going to manufacture any of this stuff? Like, he's going to, aha, I'm going to invent this stuff, and it'll be great. So obviously he wants some kind of financial reward, I assume, either that or the, the praise that would come with it, which would mean he'd have to make more than one of these things. How? It's entirely possible that some of the devices or circuitry within these things doesn't even exist on Earth, or the least doesn't know how, the people don't know how to synthesize that particular alloy yet. Third problem: Why did he take a knife? Do they not have knives from where he's from? Now, there's one other thing that must be brought up, and this is pure speculative. What did he do with the original time traveler? He mentions that that person, you know, came across and was unfortunate enough to stumble upon him. But his clothes fit me well. For the longest time, I've heard people speculate that he flat out killed the man and he murdered him. If I'm being honest, go, I, I've actually assumed that as well. But going back through with analysis mode on, I, I don't buy that anymore. Based on, and again, a lot of this is on the actor's portrayal, but also on his reactions, and I mentioned the two big ones earlier, I think it's more likely that he did incapacitate the time traveler and just, like, tied him up somewhere which is a lot less horrible than murdering a guy and stealing his time ship. What do you guys think? Because, again, we don't actually know. Mr. Rasmussen has actually brought up several times in future uh, non-canon stuff, but this, this question, to my knowledge, is never really answered, even in those. There's also... <laughs> there's a nice little bit where they... He, Picard mentions, so yeah, as soon as the your shield, your, your bubble opened, we were able to scan and deactivate all the items on the ship. Okay. That's a really, really handy tool to be able to just deactivate, use the computer to deactivate a phaser. I could think of maybe a dozen times that would have been useful up till now, and that will be useful in the future, too. Why do they never do this again? Anyways. So then... <laughs> 
Then we get to the fact that he thinks he's going to try and shut down Data and overpower him and use him. Now, let's go ahead and be blunt about this. The only reason Data doesn't incapacitate him while he is held gun to is because Data knows that the phaser is deactivated. Because Data is super strong and super fast. There is no way in hell that Rasmussen would be able to win any kind of conflict with that, even with a gun. And, of course, that applies double in the past. There's a reason the hostage situation scenario is such a terrifying one. Unless he thinks he can just keep Data disabled forever, which he functionally can't, then he is screwed by bringing Data back with him. And this brings me to my final part of this episode. So they pull Rasmussen out, and he freaks out about not going back, which I find strange. I'm curious what he cared about so much back in his time that he didn't want to go back to it. I suppose he just doesn't want to go to prison in the modern time, but I don't think he understands yet that prisons in the modern Federation era are basically resorts. So I'm sure he'll be very comfortable. What I want to know is what the hell are they going to do with the time ship? Think about this from Picard's perspective for a second. Okay, you're a fake time traveler. All right, cool. I guess I'll just go ahead and keep you here, altering the timeline, and allow the time ship to go back unattended. These both sound like really, really stupid things to do. I should also point out that he, it's mentioned that his uh, palm print can open the time ship. Why? At what point did that become a thing? Like, the, the best I've got is that he incapacitated the actual time traveler, used his unconscious palm print to open the door, got in, and then was able to convince the computer to add his palm print to security, which is, I guess that's about accurate with the level of security that the Federation shows, but it's still really, really stupid. One final point. I just want to answer my own questions here, because we know that the temporal time cops exist. That's a thing that is part of this continuity. We know that's true from Enterprise, and we know that's true from Voyager. So the obvious answer here is that they let Rasmussen's ship go back, and then, you know, Braxton shows up and says, all right, beam up the ship. There we go. Timeline maintained. Moving on. As I said, there's a lot of holes in this episode, and Rasmussen himself is a moron. But I still enjoyed it. Kind of a weird one to talk about. As ever, looking forward to your guys' thoughts, and I will see you next time.